Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening and making a commitment to your learning. We hope that everyone's doing well. We're your hosts, I'm Yvonne Brandenburg, joined by Jordan Porter. And you see, I go a little bit fast because today we're joined again by Miss Tasha McNerney. Yeah. Which she's got... we discovered last week, right? <laughs> Hold on. Sorry. Before we get to all of her initials, we discovered during Vet Tech Week that your episode that you did with us the last time is our number one right now. Oh, sweet. I know. Yeah. We were like, everybody wants anesthesia. Wants, yeah. <laughs> Team anesthesia forever. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, Tasha, it's very nice having you on our podcast. Um, remind everybody all of your initials and why you're so amazing. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm amazing just like you guys because not only am I a certified veterinary technician, or I guess you guys are registered, uh, but we're veterinary tech credentialed veterinary technician, but also uh, veterinary technician specialist, you guys being internal medicine. And I found my niche in anesthesia and pain management. And so for anybody reading who also wonders what my letters CVPP mean after my name, that stands for certified veterinary pain practitioner. And that is a designation given out by the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. And that's just to say that I spent a couple extra years collecting case reports and studying all things pain, pain management. So anything from neurological pain management to acute pain management, chronic pain management, all types of pain, we're covering it with that designation. So certainly my love for anesthesia is, is very like deep within my soul, but then also, <laughs> you know, pain management was really important too, not only in the acute surgical phase, but then I started to get interested in how are we managing these patients' pain long-term? How are we managing patients' pain as they get older, end-of-life pain, all of that kind of thing? So that's pretty much what I've dedicated my entire career to, just making sure everybody uh, loves it as much as I do. Yay. <laughs> uh, so awesome. I know, and it's funny because I think I definitely see this, um, big change in our industry in the last, I'm going to say five to 10 years where there is more of a focus on pain management and understanding what our patients look like when they're in pain, which is really cool. So. Oh yeah. Seeing that shift from like when I was in tech school and we're like, we learned that, well, we want to keep them in a little bit of pain. So they stay quiet. Right. Ooh, like yeah. to now what we all have now, like to what we have now for pain management and stuff. And like, even like I was talking to my cousin yesterday because she took her dog in and she has one of my puppies and they're just not the best behaved dogs. <laughs> like they're just like across the board, like all of them. And like, she was telling me, she's like, yeah, they had to sedate her for something. And I was like, what'd they give her? And I'm asking her all these questions. And like, and I'm like, those tools though are so nice because like for Sandy to be so stressed out and like could potentially hurt herself and like hurt the staff and stuff like that to being sedated and like getting what she needs. It's just like, it's so much just quicker and effective. And it's like the, seeing that shift from like, just hold them down and get it done. And like learning how to like wrestle animals versus like what we do now, where we're just like, no, we're just trying to make things like easy on everybody. It's, it's so refreshing. Like, yeah. Yeah. And you're and right. Especially it hasn't been that long. We know that we know from a lot of research that 
you know, stress and anxiety can exacerbate painful conditions and stress and anxiety. Uh, there are tools and ways that we can mitigate this. And certainly I grew up in the era of when we went to tech school, like one of the things we were tested on was the scruff and stretch of yeah. cats, right? Yeah. Like yeah. You, were, you were a good tech. <laughs> yeah. If you could get that cat out of that carrier and scruffed and stretched within a couple of seconds. Yeah. Oh, now yeah. we know. And like, if you held him over the table, right? Like, yeah. Oh yeah. So now again, when we know better, we do better. So we're constantly <laughs> uh-huh. learning and growing. So now that I know how to handle cats and I know that drugs are my friends, um, I'm not going to just immediately assume that any cat needs to be scruffed or stretched. Right. So, and we know that setting these cats up, uh, and I only say cats because I am a crazy cat lady. I do <laughs> love my cats, uh, cat one on my lap currently as I'm recording this. Um, but we know that with cats, especially they, just come into the veterinary clinic on high alert. And we, there's a whole series of things that we can do to make their experience better, which means, especially if they come in already slightly painful, if we can make their experience more comfortable, we're not going to add to that level of pain. Cause uh, as you guys know, as you guys have probably seen, once a cat is really stressed and they're telling you I've, I've had it, I'm done, like really yeah. done. Sometimes it's too late for your drugs to work. Right. Yeah, so it's yeah. like cat, those well, stress catecholamines, what they already done, take up the receptors you wanted to use with your drugs. So yeah. it's like, okay, we might need to regroup and replan here. Yep. It's just interesting to think that there was that disconnect though, of thinking that animals were stressed about visiting the vet, because it's like, I remember as a kid, I had stitches once and getting the stitches was like an ordeal for me. Right. Like it was like, they held me down and then like, gave me lidocaine but they didn't warn me that it burned and it was just one of those things where it's like even as a child like I was essentially like a feral cat because I'm like hitting people and I was like this is (laughs) like this is horrible and my mom had to leave the room too because she was like about to pass out because I was like screaming and like I was bleeding profusely because like once they started trying to hold me down and give me the stitches I was like yeah "Yeah, and so when I went back to get the stitches taken out same thing they like had to hold me down And they would like to get all the stitches out was like a a week long ordeal because they could only do one at a time. And then I'd have to go home and come back (sighs) the next day. And like, and I was like, just give me something. I know. I was just going to say, just think about how nice it would have been as a child if you had gotten a little intranasal midazolam and then just let to chill for a minute and you (laughs) feel good about life. Right. You're like jamming out to whatever. Yeah, know, you're you're really young, so I was like, say, I don't like, understand. Yeah. Tales, theme instinct, song. probably. I think mm-hmm. I was like, I think I was yeah. around maybe the instinct age. Well, no. So they're like, yeah, we're yeah. gonna give you some drugs. We're gonna let you chill for a minute, listen to this nice song, whatever you like, and then we're gonna that's come what back I mean. Like, try this like, again. As humans, like we've probably been in those situations where we go to the doctor yeah. and we're anxious being there. Like we're at the dentist or something, or like you know, it's like we have that anxiety because I've been to like the dentist and I'm like, I need you to give me a sedative. Like this is not going to. Like, I'm not comfortable <laughs> in this situation. And it's like, but the fact that like our patients can't ask for that, like, it's just, it's just mind blowing that we seem to have that disconnect when we can have similar experiences. 100%. And I always yeah. say, I'm not one, listen, I, I love talking about drugs and drug pharmacology. And I am not one to just say, yep, as soon as the cat comes in, just load it up with drugs. No, that's not to say, I do think a lot of cats should always just come in on gabapentin but i'm saying yeah. that not every cat that comes in you need to give it an i am injection of kitty magic or some yeah, big yeah. drugs oh. right not every cat needs that but we need to be more in tuned with watching our patients because guess what they do tell us they tell us when oh, they're yeah. done 
right? Dogs tell us, cats tell us. So if they are telling us I am done, respect that and either go to drugs or reschedule for another time. Like that's it. Don't try to fight them. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and, and I know there's so many, well, and it's getting better, but it's like that whole badge of honor. Like, yes, I wrestled this today. And you're like, Oh, oh my God. I'd be proud about that. I know it bothers me with the whole, like, look at my cat scratches and like, look at my dog bite. And I was like, I've had cat scratches and dog bites and I'm not proud of them. And it's like, yeah, it's just like, but again, that's one of those shifts, right? Like I don't see it as much anymore, but again, I've disconnected a little bit from social media, but like, I've, I don't know. It was just like, I think it's a cultural thing though. Yeah. In hospitals, like there's, and it takes it does take the entire team to switch that mentality, right? Like you need to have the doctors buying in. You need to have the technicians buying in. Um, because I, I've definitely heard technicians go, no, 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 it's cool. We don't need to do that. I got this. And I'm like, but okay. That sounds like a really horrible idea. How about we, how about we take it down a couple notches instead of ramp it up? But yeah, yeah, we got to take ego out of it. That's the thing. We got to yeah. take ego out of it. Yes. You know what? I could wrestle this dog and I could give it the bare minimum and I could take a, right. I could take a scared GDV and wrestle it and trocar, or, I mean, you know, put a tube down to trocar. Do you think that patient is going to have a great experience? Do you think the technicians like, yes, just because we can do something doesn't mean we should, right. we have to always come back to, is this in the best interest of patient care? And wrestle, like, you know, taking three technicians to wrestle a Rhodesian Ridgeback onto its side for a a chest rad. No, use drugs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because like, they remember that, right? Like I remember my traumatizing suture experience. I also remember I was four years old and I bring up this story frequently with my parents because like (laughs) it was the day my dad came home from desert storm and I had to go and get vaccines and I was freaking the hell out. And they had to hold me down and they gave me my vaccines in each one of my thighs, but like aggressively that I couldn't walk the rest of the day. And so I was in a stroller and I was like the, like, I remember that, but I don't remember like any other vaccine experience. Like it's like, but like, I remember not being able to walk. So when my dad got off the plane, I was like, dad, and like, but I can't like get up and like run and hug you. And it's like, because I was held down and then my legs were jammed with vaccines. And it's like, I'm probably exaggerating it a little bit, but like, I remember it that way. <laughs> like, and it's <laughs> like, you know, it's so our, to think that our pets don't remember that too. And it's like, why wouldn't you want a pet to be excited to see you? Like, it's like, yep. why wouldn't that be like what you strive for? I love winning like, over patients. Yeah. You know, they come in all too. freaked out and scared. And then after a couple of visits, they're like, Hey, or you get those ones <laughs> that, because like we work in referral, right. Where they're like, Oh, they have to muzzle them at my family vet or whatever. But then like, we can get away with like, because we just move differently and we speak differently and we do things differently. We can like, get away with oh, doing yeah. things without a muzzle or without holding them down or without giving sedatives. Like, you know, how many patients we've come through and they're like, yeah, my cat needs to be sedated for anything. So <laughs> And then we'll, we can manage an ultrasound without any sedation, like just because we're doing things differently and it's, it is refreshing, but kind of on topic, a little off topic. No, it's not. I think it's on topic. I mean, we came here to talk about drugs. And so I think that we, in some instances, we may overutilize drugs, but a lot of times, especially if we're talking about cats and especially when we're talking about anesthesia, we are probably missing the opportunity to use some drugs 
well, use more of certain drug classes and then reduce our overall drug classes. And again, the biggest, the biggest drug class or dr area uh, where we have an opportunity to really make a difference as far as the rest of the drugs and side effects is our local anesthetics. Exactly. Uh, that's so I think local that's anesthesia we... is just where it's at when we, yeah. when we talk about minimizing well, and I think potential we, risk and side effects. We do miss the yeah. mark a little bit with local blocks. Like I remember learning about local blocks in school, but I don't remember doing local blocks in school. Like it was one of those things yeah, where we, we read about it, but them. like we didn't, it's not something that was taught as quickly as, you know, letting a neuter feel a little bit of pain. So they stop jumping around. Like it's, it's not something that stuck with me. So I think learning about local blocks because they're so underutilized would be very beneficial, which is why you're with us. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I just did a lecture on local blocks at a conference, East coast conference. And I talk about local blocks a lot in my lectures, my teaching, yeah. because I really do believe that a, a well-placed, well-timed local anesthetic is going to do or should be doing much of the heavy lifting when it comes to pain management. And that's a shift even in the 10 years that I have become uh, a pain a veterinary pain practitioner. Um, we were taught when we were very, when I was very first studying that the pillars of pain control are opioids and NSAIDs, right? We can't do pain control, mm. opioids and NSAIDs, opioids and NSAIDs. And now everything that we're seeing, not only from the human side on opioids, right? Yeah. Restrictions, use, cost, uh, abuse potential, et cetera, but also the side effects. Side effects of opioids can be can be pretty big, uh, especially when we're talking about GI side effects um, and some cats thermoregulation side effects. So is there a way that we can add in another drug class or in another modality and reduce the amount of opioids we're giving? And yes, 100%, we could be doing local anesthetics. I mean, when we talk about pain management and we talk about using different drug classes that work along different pain pathways, right? We know that opioids are going to work on things like modulation and perception, but local anesthetics are one of the very few uh, drug classes that will work on transmission. And that means that the signal traveling up into the brain and saying to the brain, oh, hey, that hurts, right? So you guys, anybody who has ever been to, uh, anybody who's ever had surgery, who's ever been to the dentist knows that once they place a well-placed local block, you're not feeling those pain signals go up into the brain. You might still be feeling things like pressure signals, right? Or touch signals, but true pain signals are blocked. And that's because local anesthetics are one of the only drug classes that stops that nerve that, or that signal conduction, right? So local anesthetics, they completely inhibit nerve transmission uh, because they bind to the voltage gated sodium channels in the plasma membrane. So remember your, um, your, um, what is it? Your sodium potassium, right? On the, the cell membrane and all of that stuff. So local anesthetics are one of the few drugs that go to that. And because uh, they can prevent the, in, or, sorry, because they inhibit the sodium ions moving forward, that means that without those sodium ions moving forward and changing that action potential, that nerve signal cannot move forward. It is completely cut off and you cannot have any transmission up into the brain. That's so so cool. <laughs> no other drug class that we use in veterinary anesthesia does that. It's so, so important. And I, when I teach local anesthesia, I like say to people, or when I'm teaching any anesthesia, local anesthetic should be a part of your protocol, just in the same way that induction agent is part of your protocol. So when mm -hmm. I say to you, okay, Jordan, 
we are going to do uh, an abdominal exploratory on this cat. Might've eaten some rubber bands, right? So we think, what is our pre-med going to be? Okay, maybe you like hydro or maybe you're a methadone fan. What's our induction going to be? Okay, maybe I'm going to add some propofol. Yeah. Next question I'm going to say to you is, what's our local block going to be? Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's for every single surgery, whether it is a cat neuter, whether it's a dentistry with extractions, whether it is a, a an FHO, there is a local block for that. We just have to figure out what local block is going to be the most effective for that patient. Yeah, that's and that's one of those things where it's like I didn't when I say grow up, I mean like I didn't grow up with that in vet med, right? Like I don't this is especially too, because like I did move to internal medicine, right? So we do less. <laughs> and it's funny too, because like thinking about that though, I moved to internal medicine where we do less surgeries, but that's where we discovered logo blocks because we started doing local blocks for rhinoscopies and things like that. And it, it, so it is one of those things where it's like, just because I don't do surgery doesn't mean I don't utilize local blocks. I utilize local blocks a lot more than I did in general practice. Mm. Yes, but I would like to see it shift to where general practice does use it for every surgery. It's like, yeah, we want our patients to be comfortable and even human medicine doesn't have it right. Like, you know, it's, they have the tools, but think about like the procedures that women go through and stuff like that. And there's no pain control. There's no anesthesia. Like, Oh, like, don't, don't do, like, listen, don't even get me started yeah. on medical gaslighting that happens to women. We could have, we could have a whole episode on medical gaslighting in women because it is such a huge issue. Yeah. yeah because huge. women are expected to tolerate pain at the OB and stuff like that yeah. because like, because you give birth means that like you can tolerate this pain of like, I don't know if anybody's ever had an IUD place, but it's awful. Like it's awful. Like mm-hmm. it's the worst thing that I've ever experienced. And to not have any pain medication on board is like mind blowing to me. So, but like, I don't want my patients to go through that just because we're spaying them. Doesn't mean that the only thing that they get after is some carprofen. Like it doesn't like, that's crazy. Right. And I think that you brought up a good point, right? Before we get, go forward though, I do want to make sure that for those of listening, um, when you said that you utilize local blocks for your rhinoscopies, uh, you know, which local blocks were you utilizing? Just because I know there's going to be some people going, oh, I do rhinoscopies and what could I be doing to make it better? Yeah. See, this was something that we played with. Like when I first started doing rhinos, like we didn't, we didn't u- utilize local blocks. And I was like, we should do infraorbital blocks because like it numbs the face and the nose. And like, <laughs> and like, this has to be painful. You're shoving a metal object up a dog's or cat's nose. And then we cause bleeding and like, we flush it out with cold water and it's like, we cause like headache, you know, it's like, it's, mm-hmm. and it's funny too. Cause my doctor was like, yeah, you know what? We did do that in school. I don't know why we aren't doing it now. And then, so we did, we changed it. And so now that's what we do. Um, but it is one of those things where it's like, I am very curious as to what other local blocks, like, I know I've seen like, um, vet clinics do local blocks for feline neuters and stuff like that, or like neuters in general of like blocking the testicles and stuff, which is great. Like, I love it, but I am naive to the fact of what other options are out there. Oh, there's so many options. There's so many. So first of all, we can do, um, usually regional anesthesia is divided into like two different types. And that's where we're saying we can either do peripheral, uh, you know, right. Uh, blocks around the periphery, uh, or we can do central and peripheral anesthesia. That's when we're going to have a temporary loss of sensation to like a specific location. So those are your infraorbital blocks, right? So we want to do bilateral infraorbital blocks for a rhinoscopy, or if we're doing a brachycephalic airway surgery, we would do again bilateral infraorbital blocks because we want to desensitize, um, everything from the upper canines and then forward 
forward like rosterly. So the nose, right? But if we need more better further coverage, we can do central regional anesthesia. And that's when we're going to create a loss of sensation to an entire body region. And that's when we're doing things like our spinal blocks or epidural anesthesia or things like that. Right. So there's all kinds of local blocks that you can do. And again, I want to challenge everyone listening to this, that the next time you go into surgery, the same way you think about what my pre-med is going to be, I want you to think about what local block could I potentially be doing for this. Right. If you are doing a digit amputation, we can do a radial ulnar median or a rum block, right, for, for those procedures. Uh, this is a very easy block. It doesn't require any extra supplies as it would, like, if you're doing an epidural, right? If we know, we know if we're doing an epidural, we need spinal needles, we need a sterile field, we need a filtered, you know, filtered needle, we need the correct preservative-free drugs, et cetera. But let's say you have a cat that or a dog that has caught its foot in the door and now needs one of its digits amputated. Well, of course, you're going to give it a little bit of pre-med. You might give it some propofol. But before the doctor goes to amputate that digit, you, we want to put a local block in place. And one of those blocks that we can do, again, just to desensitize kind of the, the carpal pad forward um, is a radial ulnar median. Uh, rum block, or some people will refer it to as it a ring, a ring block as well, because it makes like a ring around uh, the paw. But this is just subcutaneous injection. Again, I we're not trying to target a nerve. I'm not trying to get you to go into a nerve because we definitely don't want to inject into a nerve that can cause a neuraxia, uh, and we will have uh, tingling and that numb weird feeling for, for hours and hours. And we don't want that. We would just want to basically get near the nerve. I want you to infuse that area around the nerve and basically give the nerve a local anesthetic bath. So that way, say, yeah, you're like soaking the nerve instead. Yeah, you're, you're just soaking yeah. it in local anesthetic. So that way it just is like, you know what? I can't participate in nerve conduction. So uh, I guess got to take a break for a couple hours, you guys. <laughs> and when I say take a break for a couple hours, again, that depends on which drugs you're using. So if I want those nerve signals to take a break for a short period of time, maybe it is a short procedure, such as the digit amputation, such as an, a feline or canine neuter, right? Something that's going to be mild, going to be over pretty quickly. Then I might choose something like lidocaine, which has a, a fast onset, but maybe we only get about a couple hours of duration. But if I have something like my FHO patients, or if I have a you know, a hit by car patient that now has multiple rib fractures, or if I have a dentistry that I know I'm going to do a lot of extractions on, it could be quite painful. Then I maybe want more than just two hours, right? Of local anesthetic. So that's when I'm busting out my things like bupivacaine that I can get maybe four to six hours out of. I'm busting out things like maybe I'm going to add something into the bupivacaine, right? We have a lot of evidence to show that adding things in like adding buprenorphine to your bupivacaine, adding even dexmedetomidine, my favorite drug ever, to your bupivacaine can extend out the duration of action. And we know, at least with dexmedetomidine, there's some human studies looking at adding in dexmedetomidine to epidurals in some human patients that were undergoing abdominal surgery. And they found that that duration of action went from about eight hours, six to eight hours with plain bupivacaine. And then when they added dexmedetomidine in, they got 19 hours of efficacy and, wow. and no signal conduction, which means if those pain signals are not going up into the brain, right? As you guys who have ever had a local anesthesia know, those pain signals aren't going up into the brain. You're not saying to your, 
you know, your doctor or your nurse, Hey, I need some opioids. So in the interest of how can we reduce overall opioid use in our patients and reduce the side effects that come with opioids, local anesthetics are the key and we have mm -hmm. to be utilizing them more. That's awesome. It really is. Cause it's like, it's one of the, I mean, it's clearly like underutilized. And I think for human medicine as well, like, I don't know why I keep going back to human medicine thing. It's like not my realm clearly, but I'm just like, there's an opioid crisis. Right. But if human medicine would start utilizing local blocks more, it'd just be, it'd be different. Yeah. Well, interesting enough, and I can send you guys the link. I just listened to this um, podcast where it was a doctor out of John Hopkins. He was a human anesthesiologist and in human anesthesia right now, they are having that conversation because of opioids and because of this. And at least this, this anesthesiologist at John Hopkins, he was talking about abdominal surgery. And he was saying that he and his colleagues have started this program to reduce or even eliminate opioids in surgery wow. and they will only use opioids as a last result, like a last resort, sorry. And that what they do for abdominal surgery, again, it's this one doctor at John Hopkins. And what they do for abdominal surgery is that they will start a lidocaine CRI. They give like anti-emetic drugs and all that. They will do regional anesthesia, usually a combination of epidurals and maybe uh, tap blocks and they will maintain the patient on low inhalant and a lidocaine CRI during surgery. And they will only utilize opioids in the post-operative if the pain gets so bad that they need to bring it on. But they will, they're trying to get away with now surgery, abdominal surgery with no opioids and just utilizing adjuncts and local blocks, hmm. which now, is how, fascinating. Yeah. How, yeah, that is. I mean, like it would, I'm trying to think of like all the surgeries I've ever had. And it's like, uh, like I had a bone surgery once and I was on, um, morphine CRI that I could just like push a button or whatever. But like when I go home, I'm on like Vicodin, but it's like, there was, that was on my hands. Like we could have utilized local blocks, right? Like, oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting how often, Cause I know like lidocaine washes. So like, say you're doing an abdominal explore or something like that. And you splash the, I don't, I don't know how I've read mixed signals on like how effective those are compared to like yeah. doing things like an epidural. Oh, 100%. So we know that if you're, if we're talking about really great local anesthetic, like kind of that gold, well, I would say I used to be taught that like an epidural is the gold standard. And certainly for some, it is the right choice, but there are some times that we could be doing better. If you're not able to do an epidural and you're like, I just am trying. And the only thing I'm able to do is a splash block. Certainly we can achieve some pain control because we know again, those nerve endings are there in the viscera and we can be giving some local anesthetic. However, what we need to know if we're doing a splash block is uh, the volume usually does need to be large and we need for it to be very effective. The analgesic agent, whether it be your lidocaine, et cetera, really should be applied to tissues that are as dry as possible. So okay. if you, you know, if we have our, our abdomen open and my surgeon says, well, I want to do a splash block, then I ask them to just blot and try to get these tissues as dry as possible, right? Mm -hmm. That means we don't have a lot of lavage fluid hanging around in there because that's just going to dilute and make our local block less effective, but 
really, we can get some efficacy, but splash blocks are really, they really should be used as an adjunct to a targeted regional where, mm -hmm. again, if we're doing an abdominal procedure, you can put a splash block in, it's going to, it's going to give you a little bit of efficacy, but really if I'm doing an abdominal procedure, then I want to say to my anesthesiologist or my surgeon, okay, what's going to be better for this one? Um, should we go on with an epidural? Could we get away with a uh, transverse plane block or a tap block, which we're doing a lot now in veterinary medicine, these ultrasound guided specific blocks to really target the area around a nerve. Uh, and that can have some benefits over something like an epidural, right? Because if I can target again, a region or an area instead of the epidural, which an epidural will provide really great pain control. However, for an abdominal procedure, can I do something like a transversus plane block, which will give me a bunch of, which will give me a lot of coverage there for like things uh, like exploratory laparotomies or right. Anything involving um, abdominal surgery, but this is mainly to say like, you know, just like when we're cutting through the, the skin and the sub Q and the muscles of the abdominal wall, right. Mm -hmm. Then if we look at doing something like a trans abdominal plane block versus a uh, epidural, we know that if we do an epidural where we're still going to get good analgesia for both of them. However, the side effects of the epidural may outweigh the benefits in certain patients. So, right. In some patients, especially if I'm doing a TPLO and I'm thinking which block is going to work best for this patient. Well, a targeted nerve block. So where I can target one leg and only affect one leg instead of an epidural, where now I'm going to affect both legs and potentially the bladder. Right. And I have to worry about urine retention, et cetera. So do I want to do something that's more targeted or do I want to do something that's going to be spread out? Again, every patient's going to be different. I just want you guys to be doing the blocks and having those conversations with your clinician to say, Hey, which block is going to be the best for this patient? Because trust me for every single painful procedure, there is a block that we can do that's going to best help with pain and reduce our overall opioid and inhalant anesthesia consumption. So crazy. I know. It, and I think, I think one of the things that because we weren't really taught all these in school, right? It's like learning. I'd never even heard of a tap block until just like 20 minutes ago, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what is this tap block thing? Um, and so I think it's it's learning what they are, and um, you know, it, it it's also going to be the clinicians getting comfortable like prescribing them, right? And so you have to have somebody who feels comfortable doing it. And so you, the, uh, the labs and stuff that, that you can do, or, you know, if you have, if you have patients that, you know, you can like a, you know, a cadaver that you can potentially do some blocks on and not worry about it being harmful. I think, I think that's where, you know, educating yourself is going to help. And, and, oh, 100%. I would never, yeah. you know, I would never tell anybody like, oh, just stick a needle and it's going to be <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> stick a needle into the spinal cord. What could go wrong? Uh, right. It's we want to make sure that people are educated and trained on these things. So if it's something that you didn't learn in vet school or tech school, then yes, there are a lot of resources out there that, I mean, if you're a book person, there are multiple really great textbooks on small animal regional anesthesia with step-by-step -step 
photos, et cetera. So you can learn your landmarks and all that. Nice. If you're interested, there are plenty of um, conferences and labs that hold cadaver labs where you can get hands-on with an anesthesiologist, with a VTS and anesthesia standing next to you, guiding you through these blocks. Um, I know with anesthesia nerds, every year we get involved in a lab um, doing regional anesthesia. Because again, if there's anything that I feel like I want to push to the masses of people, it's regional anesthesia and local yeah. blocks because I feel so strongly about it. Uh, and I think that as technicians, these are blocks that we can be doing. Now, certainly if you're in some countries and you're in some states in the United States, epidurals are kind of labeled for doctor only. Now, again, yeah, that's like not cystos to say, are and stuff like that. Right. Like. <laughs> that's not to say that you can't get trained in any of the other blocks. Um, for me, again, I don't know. It'd be hard. I'd be hard pressed to pick a favorite local block because there's so many. <laughs> but for me, I think that if you want to get started with anything, almost everybody with their, they are emergency clinics or general practice clinics. Almost everybody has seen a urethral obstruction cat come through your doors, right? Yeah. Now we know that if you utilize a sacrococcygeal epidural block on these cats, you can greatly again, reduce the amount of inhalant anesthesia you need or completely eliminate the inhalant anesthesia, reduce the amount of overall opioids and make the, and make catheterization of that male cat much, much, much easier because not only are you desensitizing it and it's not painful, but that uh, muscle, that area is all relaxed now, right? Um, because uh, the way that the block works is it's not in the same as an epidural where we're going to get um, hind limb and, and bladder involvement. A sacrococcygeal block really is like going all the way back to that first caudal um, end of the sacrum. It's where the end of the sacrum meets the first coccygeal vertebrae. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the contraindications are similar uh, as for epidurals. Like I wouldn't do a sacrococcygeal block in a patient that had been hit by a car and had a broken uh, pelvis or something like that, or had a skin infection over the site of injection. But you when mean I so say, those heavily burdened flea patients? We wouldn't do that. Probably, <laughs> yeah. I probably wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, and certainly we know with epidurals, any clotting disorder we want to be careful of. But for a tomcat that comes in, that comes in to see you and they have urethral obstruction, um, performing this block is going to change your life. And I know that that sounds like a very bold claim to make. However, because everything gets desensitized and it, this block is not only good for uh, block cats, but it's also great for if you have a cat that gets its tail caught in the door. Now you need to do a partial tail amputation or degloving. Uh, if you have a anal sacculectomy patient mm. uh, or something like that, if you have a perianal urethrostomy, so this is going to, we still, the cat's still going to be able to move around and walk around, right? Because we're not getting high and limb involvement as we would with an epidural. But the sacrococcygeal block, the beauty of it is that it's going to desensitize the penis, the anus, the perineum and all that stuff. And when that happens and all of that muscle and everything just gets so nice and relaxed, guess what? That penis, you don't have to fight with the penis. The penis just comes out of the prep use to say hi to you. Yeah. Everything's more relaxed and it's much, much easier to facilitate unblocking. Now, again, that, I'm not saying that it makes, you know, whatever crystal plug is holding it up easier, yeah, yeah. but just that kind of like, you know, when some people you're watching them, they're having a really hard time, just even extruding the penis, 
it eliminates that. It makes yeah. it so much easier. And on anesthesia nerds, we've talked about this a bunch because I think everybody knows how I feel about a sacred coccygeal mm-hmm. block. Like best thing ever to happen to GP emergency. Best thing ever to happen for Tom cats that come in blocked. Really? You need to yeah. make yourself a t-shirt or a sticker or something with a sacral coccygeal block. Like, yeah. SC block all day, yeah. every day. <laughs> um, when it comes to local blocks though, would you say, cause again, I'm not, I really am not overly familiar with it. Like I know that there is dosing for local anesthetics, but like, would you say it's like a safer margin? Like than if we were giving opioids, like we have clear, like overdose, like guidelines on opioids, but I feel, I don't know. I think this oh, is just like yeah. a personal the- feeling when it comes to like, yes, you can overdo it with locals, but like the risk is the risk of damage is less, right? Like, certainly, um, I guess it's two things. We definitely do have guidelines for local anesthetics and we can, of course, give too much. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, most of our patients, what we're doing is something like 0.1 mLs of volume per keg of a local anesthetic, whether that be lidocaine, bupivacaine, ropivacaine, something like that. Um, One thing I would note, though, is that if you're using lidocaine, right, and you go way over that dosing in a cat, we do have to be careful with cats and they're prone to, you know, arrhythmias with that. But also with bupivacaine, this is one thing, again, why I wouldn't just say anybody go willy nilly, stick a needle in and start doing local blocks. You need to be trained on the anatomy. You need to be trained on your landmarks, but also just the drugs that you're using. If you're utilizing bupivacaine, we got to be careful with where we're placing it. And we always have to make sure that we pull back to make sure we're not in a vessel because we know uh, that bupivacaine can have some, it can be cardiotoxic and have some bad results there. So we definitely don't want to inject bupivacaine accidentally IV. Also, if we're dealing with knees, we know that bupivacaine can be chondrotoxic as well. So we have to be really careful um, that we're not injecting bupivacaine into the joint capsule and we're just doing it in the area around it. So again, get to know your anatomy, get those textbooks. There's all kinds of resources online. There's classes that you can take Um, so I would say there's a lot of information out there. So if you're interested in starting local regional anesthesia at your practice, then just become that point person and get as much knowledge as possible, get a clinician to partner with you and then become the, the local regional anesthesia team for the practice. It just seems like when it comes to like dosing, it's more of a general dosing and like the risks are more landmarkish versus like. that can be true yes like we have the risk of overdose right but like it's just not the same as giving like an iv injection of an over like too large of a volume of buprenex to a cat like it's it's not the same correct unless you're using a local anesthetic such as lidocaine in a constant rate infusion yes yeah yeah so it's just one of those things where it's like it has its benefits right of like for the patient, but it also has its benefits of like use of ease for us. Like, yes. well, you have mm-hmm. to know the, the, the landmarks and stuff, but like you said, like a lot of your local blocks are like 0.1 mils per kig. Yes. Versus, We're not talking like, about huge volumes here. Yeah. And, and it's like across the board, like for multiple like local anesthetics versus just like this drug is 0.1 mil, like mils per kig. And this one's 0.05. Like, of course you're going to have that here and there. It just, it just seems a little bit easier. <laughs> like 
Yeah. Yeah. The dose. So there's, I feel like with local anesthesia, other than learning it and the learning yeah. curve associated with the regional blocks, the benefits far, far outweigh the risks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it just, other than learning the landmarks, like it just seems easier. <laughs> like it's yes, just like, easier. Right. And now, so. especially because we have things like Noceda on the market, right? So if you guys don't know, um, Noceda is a liposomal encapsulated bupivacaine. Um, it's only labeled right now for cranial cruciate surgery in dogs. And I believe in order to get the label for cats, they did, which again, I'm not a fan of this, but they did an onchiectomy uh, for the studies to get for Noceda labeled in cats. And so it's labeled for dogs, labeled for cats. And the fantastic thing about this bupivacaine is that because of the liposomes, it pretty much stays put. So it stays close and it hugs that incision site. If you place along the, the side of the incision, um, especially around the knee for knee surgery, and it can last up to 72 hours or more. There are some studies in human medicine, which they saw over 90 hours of of efficacy. Wow. So imagine having a local block that can keep those nerve signals from, you know, sending those pain signals up to the brain for up to 72 hours. Again, the amount of opioids we can reduce is huge. And yeah, yeah, yeah. in our practice, we notice with our, um, with our TPLO patients, we used to have them on fentanyl for up to 12 hours post-surgery. Mm -hmm. Now that we do targeted nerve blocks. So we do a femoral block and a sciatic block using our nerve stimulator. And then we do noceda at closure. Since we've implemented those regional blocks uh, and those techniques, we do not have our patients on fentanyl at all after which is great for like he healing and like hypothermia risks after, after procedures and things like that. It's, yes. it's great to not have that on board. And of and course eating, like, right. Yeah. Cause we know that opioids uh, are going to make our patients feel yeah. nauseous, slow down yeah. the GI potential for ileus. So if we can get our patients off uh, opioids sooner, that's going to be to the benefit of everybody. And I think that's going to be key too, when it comes to learning about local blocks, right. To, we want to, we want to learn what benefits it has of like removing those opioids. So things like GI stasis and hypothermia and, and just disorientation and, and things like that. It's, we don't think of those as like huge deal breakers when it comes to utilizing opioids, but like, we don't realize how beneficial is for the patient to not have those side effects. Like, yes, because, because we've utilized opi opioids for so long that those side effects just seem normal. Like it just seems like, well, that's common after the procedure, but it's like, we don't have to have those side effects. Like, right. It, it, it's, it's very interesting. If we were to break it down into like working in a general practice and doing our, our common, like basic dentals and spays and neuters and cruciate tears and stuff, what are your favorite, most commonly used local blocks and in what situations would we want to use those? Yeah, sure. So if we're just talking from a GP perspective, we can start out with dentistry. Certainly mm -hmm. if you are a technician working heavy in dentistry, I think it's important for you to know 
all four uh, dentistry local blocks that we commonly use, and that's the infraorbital block, right? If I needed to take out a big upper canine on a Labrador, I'm going to do an infraorbital block. Um, however, if I needed to take out a fourth premolar, I know that that infraorbital block might not hit there. So mm -hmm. I got to go further back. And that's when I'm doing a maxillary block. Now, again, maxillary block is going to be, this is something that I say, you need to have training in this. I would yeah, not yeah, recommend absolutely. anybody go into a maxillary block with no training or no cadaver training at all, because you can do some damage as you guys can probably appreciate me going right behind the last molar up with a needle. If I'm not trained and I'm not placing my needle correctly, guess what? I can hit the the ocular cavity. And I don't want that. So we need to make sure if we are doing a maxillary block, we're just training it and everybody's on the same page, right? Get some resources, make sure you know your anatomy. And then on the lower side, again, if I need to take out a lower canine, then I might do a mental block, right? Or I might even do a, a mandibular block, which comes all the way back. And there's a couple ways you can do that. Um, I do believe there's some really nice resources online. Um, I think that there was an article in today's veterinary nurse that outlined dentistry blocks specifically. Mm -hmm. um, it was great. I, the author is fantastic. It was me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find it um, and I'll try to, I'll so, link it to our show notes. Um, but that outlines kind of all the four blocks that we do in dentistry most commonly. And if I'm going into now surgery, like let's say I'm doing things like lumpectomies or I'm doing a, a spay or a neuter. Certainly with the neuter, I can target something like an intratesticular block. And I know a lot of people say like, why would I need to do a testicular block? Like I'm taking the testicles out, right? Well, the cool thing about a testicular block is again, we're not doing it so that those testicles stay desensitized when they're in the biohazard bin, right? Like we don't care about that, but we do care about that kind of just couple of minutes where the local anesthetic can be helping if any of those pain signals are getting through up into the brain. So we know that what happens is we have our patients either under heavy sedation or under anesthesia, and then our uh, surgeon cuts in, we, you know, we pop those testicles out and now he's uh, pulling on the cord and the ligament and that pulling usually will elicit a response. Now, instead of topping off with more propofol or more inhalant, again, side effects such as vasodilation and um, things that we don't want, we can do a local block. So an int intratesticular block, very easy. You guys already have all the supplies in your practice. And that way, when the doctor gets to the pulling and tugging part, those signals aren't going up into the brain as much. So we don't have as much reaction. Hence, we don't have to top off with drugs that could potentially be causing problems. So nice. intratesticular block is super, super easy. Everybody has the supplies to do this in your practice already. Very easy to use. You can do this. And then if I'm doing a spay procedure, if I have technicians that are trained in an ultrasound guided transabdominal plane block or a tap block, I'll probably do that again, because I want to desensitize um, all of those structures associated with the abdominal wall. But if I don't have that, right, and then I want to make sure if I don't have the benefit of that, then I'm going to have to keep my patient as stable as possible under anesthesia. And you can do a preemptive line or infiltration block, or you can do a post-operative line or infiltration block. And that's just where you're going subcutaneously and you're diffusing the area with local anesthetic. And you're hoping that, um, again, as long as it's not noceta, most bupivacaine or lidocaine will easily kind of spread out over the tissue and then desensitize that area. Mm -hmm. Would 
which can be useful when patients wake up and they're like, this incision is bothering me kind of thing. And it's like, we, we reduce the risk of needing an e-collar right away as soon as they wake up and like, and things like yes. that. So um, I know we use that one, um, for our C-sections and it actually, um, helped with like post C-section, C-section aggression. Cause then, you know, when the puppies are nursing and like, yeah, yeah, which was really cool. I was like, Oh, which makes okay. sense. Right. Yeah. You, could you like, imagine like, here's we, little feet going in my right. incision. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, especially so, like puppies have sharp toenails when they're born. Like yeah, they're just yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, like it, it's, it is very interesting. Now, is there, I'm sure the answer is yes, but like, say you have like an oral hematoma, like how would you to think of the way that we treated those in general practice, I imagine there's a better way, right? Like there's ways that we can make that less uncomfortable for a pet. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the the pain associated with those is just the, the pressure buildup, right? And once we yeah. release that, it is a little bit better. However, we know that there's pain and inflammation associated with it. So for those, again, we have to look at what's the main thing. I probably want to get this animal started on an NSAID, but before we get them and maybe they, we give them some heavy sedation so that my clinician can go in and relieve the pressure of that hematoma, there's certainly some blocks that we can do. Um, we can do an auriculotemporal block, which kind of comes kind of at the base of the ear. Um, we use those blocks a lot for tika surgeries or things like that, um, yeah, but that's going to desensitize down in there and up through some of the pinna. What I will say though, just to note about the pinna and extremities such as the toes if you're using lidocaine, that's really great. You just want to make sure that you're not using lidocaine containing epinephrine. And the reason is because that they epinephrine like crazy. and the vasoconstriction that's associated with it can actually, um, you know, decrease the amount of oxygen that's getting delivered there. And we can see tissue necrosis later. So we want to make sure oh, that we are not using local anesthesia with epinephrine on things like ear tips or digits or tails, right? That's We're, just because that severe yeah. vasoconstriction with the epinephrine can lead to local ischemia and necrosis. So yeah, just be because careful. those areas already have like a little bit like less ability to perfuse well right. in general, right? except for when so, you cut them and then they seem to bleed forever. And yes. uh, <laughs> like, so, okay. Interesting. Uh, I'm learning a lot with this episode. Um, <laughs> As I normally do when we Local have guests blocks on. for everyone. That's what I mean. Like you have to have an ability to local block pretty much anything. Like it's, it's. Yeah. And you can, right. So if you're going to take an eye out, let's say you have to do an enucleation, you're going to do a retro bulbar block, right? Yeah. But again, anything that we are inflicting some level of pain and inflammation, there is a way to, to do a local block. And I want to challenge all the texts that, on their anesthesia sheets, again, right under the line that says induction, I want you to write local block and I want you to figure out a local block for every patient. Now, I'm certain you have an answer for this question too. What textbooks, what textbook or books would you recommend for someone who really wants to learn about all the ways to utilize local blocks? Of course. Local well, I was hoping you would say that. That's why I brought this with me. Oh, it's, it's blurry. Dang it. it oh is. no. <laughs> you guys can't see it on that thing. Sorry. Um, but you're going to share it with is, me so I can share. I'm going to share it with you. So there's a couple of different 
textbooks that we recommend, uh, or I say we anesthesia nerds group. Uh, and one is this small animal regional anesthesia by Pablo Otero and Diego Portella. This is a fantastic book. And if you're a book person that likes, you know, books with lots of color pictures and diagrams and it has a lot of ultrasound guided things versus landmark nice. things. It is a fantastic resource. And the other one is Small Animal Regional Anesthesia and Analgesia by Louis Campoy, Matt Reed. So both of those books are really, really fantastic resources when it comes to regional anesthesia. Nice. <laughs> it is It is interesting um, just to think though, like definitely share the link with me on the... Well, first off, your article for Dental Local Blocks, because I'll share that too, as well as the textbook. And then, of course, we'll uh, share the links to Anesthesia Nerds and, and things like that, because if you're not a part of that Facebook group and all that, you guys do amazing work with that. And um, mm -hmm. and it it is very educational and not a lot of like the banter that we can see in some Facebook groups, right? So no, it, we it, don't, no, we don't tolerate banter. We're not yeah. here for banter. We're here for education, elevating the standard of care. And we yeah. all, we all have something to learn. We all are at different levels in our career. And yeah. I think it's my job well, to continuously be learning. Yeah. And, and that's the thing though, too, right. Is like, we always think like you're at the top of your game, right? Tasha, like you're at the oh, top I of your hope game. Not. Well, no, I just mean like, <laughs> I'm we, done after this. Whoop, no, no, no. <laughs> I just mean that like, when it comes to like thinking of that tech, who is like anesthesia, like I think of you and Steven, and it's, but you both still, there's always something new to learn. Like we're never mm -hmm. done learning. And so it, it's one of those things where it's like, when we have those platforms that we can use where we can learn more, like I want to know those platforms that are going to be less just banter and complaining about the way things went in clinic and more of the like, well, how can we make this situation better? You know? Oh yeah. I yeah. just want to constantly be improving. And I think, again, that's my job. That's going to make me, it, it all has to come down to, right? Why we got into this. We all got into this to ease animal suffering and provide the best care. Yeah. And the only way that I'm going to provide the best care is if I keep learning. Because if I keep doing everything that I learned in 2002, yeah. that's going to be outdated. That's not going to be in the best interest of the patient. We are constantly learning, seeing from research, mm -hmm. growing, oh, challenging ideas that we once had, right? Yeah. One of my favorite, favorite sayings is, don't believe everything you think. Yeah. And for me, that's like, mm. I really sometimes have to ask myself like, oh, you know, even though I did learn that opioids were the mainstay and the number one for pain control is there's a lot of evidence to say that maybe that's not true. And we have yeah. other, other better ways. So again, it's up to me to always be on the lookout for new information, always be open to new ideas yeah. and to benefit the patient. We yeah. need like, as medical professionals, we need to accept the fact that the medical field is constantly changing. It's always going to be new. There's always going to be new research and new theories and new like ideas about things. And the, the ways of like, let them be painful. So they're not as, so they don't move as much as it, it's just, it was it's antiquated. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. wallet. The scruff and stretch, man. Yeah. Antiquated. Well, antiquated. Well, it seemed appropriate in the moment. We always need to like be open to the idea that there might be a better way. <laughs> so it's mm. like, it, it is, I feel like that's easily lost um, during some periods, mm. but I feel like lately in just medicine in general, like things are quickly changing and it, it's very refreshing. 
Yeah, it's great. I, again, as somebody who wants to be a lifelong learner, and I've always said this, if I won the lottery, that's I would just go back to school and collect degrees just because I nice. enjoy, <laughs> I really enjoy learning. Um, but I'm just kidding. I would be on a yacht in Capri. <laughs> um, but learning online, definitely. I was going to say um, remote learning. <laughs> remote learning, yeah. yeah, from my yacht in Capri. Yeah. But what's really re- kind of refreshing to me is like seeing the new generation of text mm-hmm. embrace this and also challenge it. Yeah, yeah. I want you to ask me why and I want you to challenge the status quo. And I want anybody who's listening to this, if something doesn't feel right and you think, hmm, could there be a better way we're doing this? Yeah. Look into well, it. Research thing, though, it. Too, like, we need you. Yeah. yeah. That in, people in vet med are taking the initiative to learn more by listening to podcasts and things like we didn't have that when we went to tech school at least when I went to tech school and stuff like that, like I didn't have that ability to learn more on top of what I was learning. I mean, I did by reading textbooks, but it's so much more available now, like so much more easily accessible now that like it's refreshing to see that even brand new baby techs are like taking the initiative to learn more outside of school, you know? So it's, it's nice. Like it's nice where the world's going. Yeah. I love it. So speaking, speaking of um, veterinary anesthesia nerds and learning and stuff, is there something coming up soon that people should know about? Yeah, we have our (laughs) symposium. We actually have, (laughs) we are doing a symposium within a symposium uh, or within a conference. We partnered up with Fetch DVM 360 and we will be holding and sponsoring anesthesia nerds talks at DVM 360 I guess DVM 360 fetch it's in San Diego in December. So a nice excuse to, you know, know, go somewhere warmer than a lot of other places. And yeah, I was going to say for me, I'm in Philadelphia, (laughs) so it'll be a nice break. Um, But yeah, we have two days of tracks. That's nothing but anesthesia pain management. We partnered with two, I mean, two brilliant anesthesiologists to speak on our behalf. Of course, I'm going to be lecturing. Darcy's going to be lecturing. Steven is going to be lecturing. So it's the three of us with the two anesthesiologists giving all kinds of anesthesia and pain management content over those couple of days in a fabulous location. So if anyone is listening and just needs some end of the year CE or just wants to, you know, get crazy in San Diego and uh, have some tacos (laughs) and beer with me, come on down. Nice. Yeah, that's really cool because I know you guys, you guys had your conference and then you know COVID hit, and so it's been yeah, COVID changed a lot. (laughs) So I'm glad that you guys have it again. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Anything else we want to touch on? Because I know you've got you got kids stuff you got to do. So we always got kids stuff, and I (laughs) really think the main thing is that I want to empower technicians to speak up, work together collaboratively with your clinician to create the best experience. Like, you know, it, it, the ways of this hierarchy that it's, you know, the veterinarian and then the technician just carries out their orders. That's true to some extent, but we really have to be working as a team Mm -hmm. to create the best experience for the patient. Right. I want to tell you what I know based on my observations and area of expertise. And then the veterinarian is going to take that information with what they know, and we're going to come up with a plan. So it really is coming up with a plan together. And anesthesia is definitely one of those areas that we have to plan together. Yeah. Yeah. What's a local block that we could utilize for this patient? Oh, you know what? We could do a, and for orbital block. Oh, I'm not, 
well-versed in that, is that something you can teach me or can we go and learn it together so that we can bring this back to our clinic? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm glad we had you on the podcast. We always learn so much. And like I said, I think our listeners too just love it because it's, it's, it's just one of those things that like, you have to actively like seek out additional information on like how to do those things better. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you dropping some knowledge like always. And we just appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks so much yeah. for all you guys do as well. <laughs> we try. <laughs> we, we try to get the knowledge out there. So, well, it was, it was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, Hopefully like, let us know if you guys try some of these that, that you've, you know, haven't used previously and, you know, let us know how it goes. Cause it, I don't know. I think it's fascinating. And I love that, you know, these patients get better care when we learn better. So thank you everybody so much for listening and making a commitment to learning Tasha again. Thank you so much for joining guys. If you haven't listened to Tasha's podcast, the uh, veterinary anesthesia nerds, please go over and listen and check out the Facebook page, check out their website, check out their symposium. So, um, and then I'll share of course the links to how to find Tasha and all of her amazing stuff that she does with Steven Satile and stuff. Um, and thank you and Darcy. Yes. Sorry. Sorry, Darcy. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of, we have, I couldn't do it alone. Certainly. It's a big yeah. job to like yeah. take on, you know, just educating everyone as far as anesthesia goes. Cause your so. husband yeah. and stuff and helps out too. So it's oh, like, <laughs> he does. I know. Thank God for him because, and he's a vet tech as well. He yeah. is oh, a CBT and he's working on potentially becoming a BTS anesthesia. So wow. we'll have a full on <laughs> anesthesia house here. <laughs> Your awesome. son's going to go do like something completely opposite of just veterinary anesthesia. What would that be? Yeah. I'm thinking like more holistic stuff. Like he's, oh, he's going to just oh, become like, huh. yeah. But Tasha's like, not... I don't know about this. No. <laughs> yeah. So. Even anyway. as a professional soccer player, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, That'd be cool. That's where he's, that's where he's laying. I did ask him if he wanted to get into vet med and he was like, very clearly, absolutely not. (laughs) So off topic, uh, my daughter took one of those tests at school that tells you like what your career should be. And like hers was like a psychologist or a therapist. And I was like, mom. Probably because your mom's that shit crazy. And (laughs) (laughs) oh my god, that's so funny. Anyway, all right, guys, you have a wonderful (laughs) afternoon, and we will talk with you guys next week. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Tasha. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.